It is June 2nd, 1894, and that goddamn river just keeps on rising. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked-out history folks at orhistory.com. We profile only the most bad-ass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Kick-Ass Oregon History is a presentation of ORHistory.com and is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit ORHistory.com and click Donate. Anyone who has listened to Kick-Ass Oregon history, even once, knows that the seedy, seamy, strip city that was Portland in the late 1800s was filled with vice and sin. Crimpers like Bunko Kelly and Larry Sullivan collected sailors, loggers, and blood money. Saloon operators such as Fred Fritz and August Erickson sold shit tons of beer and profited from gambling. Storied whores exemplified by Nancy Boggs, Liverpool Liz, and our favorite Boneyard Mary did what storied whores do best. To borrow a term from our dear friend Finn John, 1880s and 1890s Portland was indeed wicked. And some folks were not too pleased with this designation. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, 
I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood, and behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life from under heaven and everything that is in the earth shall die. In the early years of our state, flooding in Oregon was nothing new. Rivers freshets were quite a common thing. Today it is difficult to create a natural Columbia River in our mind, but remember, before this was one of the most engineered rivers in the world, before all the mighty dams were constructed that regulated every flow of water that passed down its mighty brown surface, the Columbia flooded often. In fact, every spring and early summer saw the Columbia rise. The natural process is very simple. Snow in the mountains melts, and it comes downstream. Rain falls in the watershed, and it flows to the ocean as well. Lots of snowmelt, lots of rain, and no concrete and rebar constructed dams to restrict the flow, and you get seasonal flooding. The Willamette River flooded as well, and high water in one of these intertwined rivers always affected the other. The summer of 1866 found the Willamette at a height of 21 feet above the low water mark. In 1890, it also found the Willie's water level rising very high and then falling rather abruptly. But nothing ever topped the great flood of 1894. <laughs> So, why was the Willamette River so goddamn high in June of 1894? Well, asked Kicker, the blame lies partially on the Columbia River. You see, the previous winter saw an exceptionally heavy snowfall throughout the entire Columbia River drainage basin. This, aided with the coincidence of floods in the Upper Columbia and the Snake River, Add to this some very heavy rainfall in the lower drainage area and, well, you get the idea. The Willamette didn't necessarily flood by itself in June of 1894, but the overflow of the Columbia also slowly seeped into the Willamette River, causing the Columbia to back up into the already swollen Willamette. On May 28th, the Weather Bureau called the citizens' attention to the problem with the Columbia and announced that high water should be expected. And then slowly, the water began to rise. 
On June 7, 1894, the Willamette's waters stood at their maximum height ever, 33 feet above flood stage. Needless to say, Stumptown was a bit wet. An area of 250 square blocks was affected in Portland. The water generally followed the 50 feet above sea level mark in the city, and at its widest point, it inundated a swath 11 blocks wide. Between Flanders and Everett Streets, it ran from the river to 10th Street. Entire buildings were enveloped in water past their first floor. Wooden sidewalks, even those weighted down with rocks and scrap metal, broke free and just floated away. It was a flood of biblical proportions. But Portlanders seemed to adapt to it pretty goddamn well. Boats were everywhere. Anything that could float was put in the water and some dude would paddle you from point A to point B in the flooded city for a fee and hopefully in a somewhat dry state. Barges, rafts, bateau, and even the lifeboat from the steamer Oregon were pulled into service. Boats rode through the arched doorways of Union Station and through the open doors of freight cars that stood on the tracks. Boats would jam up at embarkation locations on the newly created floating sidewalks, crashed and mashed together, tempers would flare, and harsh words would be exchanged. Piloted in a somewhat awkward fashion, these clumsy craft would crash into abandoned storefront windows. The sounds of smashing glass was as common as the straining of oars. More elegant than the riffraff, canoes were reported to be the preferred craft of businessmen, and William Ladd was noted specifically as possessing a beautiful canoe which he manipulated with skill and grace. How many boats were in our fair city of yesteryear? Even the Oregonian couldn't answer the question. As guests to the number of boats now in the streets is about as difficult as counting a flock of geese. They are constantly on the move, save the picket line awaiting customers. There must be 1,000 to 1,500. As the correspondent added somewhat sardonically, enough when waters recede to overstock the market and furnish excellent opportunities for many boys to drown themselves in the river. What else was everywhere? Photographers. Photographs of suit-clad, mustachioed men standing in the water, in front of buildings, with ducks swimming by, became very, very ordinary. The cameramen have photographed almost every building and point of interest in the submerged district, and photos of the Great Flood of 1894 are now almost as common as playing cards. It's almost impossible to pass through the flooded streets without being halted and required to keep still for a moment so the picture will not be spoiled. Wonderful little vignettes emerge of a flooded city that really just kind of rolled with the punches and learned to live with the slowly rising water. 
Remember, this was a town that flooded often. And while, of course, the filthy waters never had raised this high, it was still a habituated task to deal with such delusions, and Portlanders were well acquainted with the drill. Our old-timey citizens just went on with their daily business. Chinese, for the most part, are excellent boatmen, and the manner in which they handle their strange-looking craft is interesting. They have long ago found out that rowing is difficult in the narrow streets, so they have discarded the oars and are using paddles, with which they are almost as expert as an Indian. Ten of them appeared on 2nd Street yesterday afternoon in a long boat, finely modeled and well-balanced, and they handled it with such skill and grace as to cause quite a sensation in that portion of the city. Of the ten, all but two were stripped to the waist and bareheaded. Each was equipped with a paddle and knelt in the bottom of the boat. One of the remaining men acted as a steersman, and the other stood amidships and beat time on a gong. This outfit proved to be the fastest on the water. Although they said nothing, their appearance was a challenge, and they took the starch out of more than one crew that tested their speed. Faced with an insurmountable challenge, the whiskey peddlers and beer halls of our city still maintained a fine economy. While many other merchants were able to relocate to drier environs in the deluge, the alcohol licenses that the bars and taverns operated under were address-specific for the dispensing of intoxicants. Not that such a mere technicality would stop the flow of spiritous liquors. Saloon men have been driven out of their places of business, but have built rafts and are doing business in the open air. Others have removed to the second story, where they appear to be doing a thriving trade. Other bits of commonplace business became bizarrely complex beneath the swollen waters. On Front and Stark, a submarine diver in full armor went to work trying to get a safe open and remove important books and papers. A person passing in front of the building was startled to see his helmet, looking like a huge bald head, rise to the surface with the diver following. It seemed he needed a cold chisel to open the safe, and when he was given it, he and his helmet immediately sank out of sight with a great bubbling and sputtering. The novelty of fishing, literally on the city streets, captured the imagination of Portlanders, and the pursuit became quite popular. Suckers, chubs, and carp were common, but angling salmon was less so. A five-pound salmon was caught at Bissinger & Company, located at, appropriately, Front and Salmon Streets. Another fish, a 15-pounder, was driven into shallow water on Front Street, and the fishermen did manage to land it in the boat but many Portlanders decided it was just easier to fish out of the second-story windows, simply dropping their lines into the submerged streets below. 
elevated walkways were constructed over the flooded area. Some of these contrivances situated at intersections were tall and arching so high that the boats could actually get under them. There were drawbridges installed at some crossings, and another rather novel bridge was constructed by eternally crafty Portlanders using empty whiskey barrels. It was not all fun and games with empty whiskey barrels during the Great Flood of 1894. Businesses in the affected area which had means were able to move temporarily to higher ground. But not all of our residents were so fortunate. At one point, a terrifying rumor spread like wildfire that the Columbia River was forcing its way over the dividing line and would come tearing down Sullivan's Gulch. Today the location of Interstate 84, but at the time, the gulch was the setting of numerous shoddy homes and transient dwellings. The contours and topography of the area suggested that in the past, storm waters had come tear ass down through the gulch. The inhabitants, needless to say, were frightened they would be swept away. We like to talk about the North End, or today's Old Town, quite a bit here at Kick-Ass Oregon History, because that's where all the naughty shit happened. The whores, the shanghaiers, or the crimps, the giant saloons and the gambling, the sailors and the loggers and the drunks and the bums. The fun stuff. But it was also the home to the vulnerable, the most on edge, those Portlanders that were living truly on a shoestring. And while the businesses and the wealthy were pretty inconvenienced by the Great Flood of 1894, most of the other residents of the North End, they just straight up got fucked. Even the Oregonians seemed to be a little bit hardened by those impoverished souls. They reported that as the water rose, the poor piled their pitiful household belongings onto impoverished rafts and looked for higher ground. Homeless. Hotels and lodging homes became crowded in the flood, with those that could afford to pay the rent. Some benefit was seen in the flooding of this district, or at least the Oregonian saw such. Whitechapel was never so orderly as it has been during the past two days. Police regulations, combined with the elements, have wrought this change. Saloon bums and creatures of a similar nature are no longer to be seen on the streets, and resorts that have always given the police trouble are closed up and dark. Drunken men are still to be found, however. They go floundering through the flood, tumbling about and sputtering like fish in shallow water. Several of them have had narrow escapes from drowning, for had no one been on hand to pick them up when they fell, a watery grave would have been theirs. And just think of all those poor, soon-to-be sailors, locked up down in the Shanghai tunnels. Oh right, that's all just bullshit. Coming there, 
And of course, this was a regional disaster. The Dalles saw their high water mark reach 53 feet, and the damage there was massive. Entire Columbia River communities were affected and fared much worse than Portland. Captain Bailey of the steamer Baker arrived in Portland with the disabled ship Harvest Queen in tow. The captain described the scene on the Columbia River. The Cascades are now one of the grandest and most sublime sights man ever looked upon. The water comes down at an awful rate of speed in huge billows from 12 to 15 feet high, foaming and thundering along in a matter that is indescribable. Houses coming over the Cascades are dashed to pieces long before they reach the end and logs and trees shoot along as if they were thrown from a mighty catapult. The damage caused by the rampant waters is almost inestimable. Whole towns have been carried away, and the fishing business at the Cascades is done for this year. Mr. Stevens of Cathlamet reported that, From the mouth of the Willamette to Cathlamet, the lowlands are flooded with water. At some places, you can barely see the housetops along the river, and at other points, old shanties are being tossed about by the flood. The waters extend from the hills on the Oregon side to those on the Washington side of the Columbia and covers entirely every piece of lowland within those limits. A house floating in the river is a common sight, and occasionally there are pieces of furniture aboard. Kalama is entirely underwater, as are also other places thereabouts. Down in Astoria, there's no flood, as the waters have not yet reached the mark attained by the high tide. So the people of the Venice of America escape the flood, which the residents of Portland get at its best. And certainly, dear ass-kicker, we would be remiss if we didn't mention the rats. Oh, and the shit. Don't forget the shit. You see, the water was mixed with sewage, and the flood created an odor which testifies to its unhealthy character. Fearing an epidemic of wickedness, it was thought that the receding waters would leave a cakey black deposit, a layer of shit, that would breed malaria, scarlet fever, and diphtheria. Not that an epidemic of wickedness was absent at the high water level. Massive numbers of vermin, waves of rats, were driven from the wharves by the flood to higher ground. Oh, except for the horde of rats that were witnessed on the counter of a flooded store on Morrison Street, huddled close together like a kindle of kittens, writhing and slowly starving to death. Symbolization denoting high watermarks became fairly common in the weeks after the flood. In fact, many communities along the Columbia River designated high watermarks from the 1894 flood, and several brass plaques can be found on buildings in the Dalles to this day. In Portland, you can still find one at the Hazeltine building at 2nd and Pine. 
most of the marks from the era resembled those of a downtown hotel, which had a gilded arrow pointing to a mark and an accompanying script that read, Great Flood, 11 a.m., June 7, 1894. Another building whose name has been lost in the pages of history had printed next to their high water mark, the water was this high because it was no higher. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights, and the flood was forty days upon the earth, and the waters increased and bare up the ark, and it was lifted up above the earth, and the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both fowl and cattle, and of beast, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, and every man. All in whose nostrils was the breath of life, all that was in the dry land, died and every living substance was destroyed which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of the heaven, and they were destroyed from the earth, and Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed upon the earth an hundred and fifty days. Stop for a moment and close your eyes. Imagine the Columbia River. Now try to imagine the same river but in a natural state. A river that is allowed to ebb and flow as would be dictated by its own natural intention. To rise and fall with the seasons. To be flush with salmon that are allowed to migrate as they have for thousands of years. Imagine the Columbia River. Just allowed to be a river, man. I wonder if we really can. The Columbia River of 1894 is gone. Today, the mighty Columbia has 14 dams severing its flow like a series of massive concrete tourniquets. Yes, most of these projects produce electricity or aid irrigation, 
but some were partially warranted with the threat of uncontrollable floods, like the one that befell Vanport in 1948 and then begat the Flood Control Act of 1950, justifying the further man-instigated control of one of Earth's most colossal rivers. We have legislated, manipulated, and physically constructed one of our planet's most majestic flowing bodies of water, and it is now engineered for our purposes, and frankly, for our purposes alone. Fuck, even in elementary school, I was taught to sing with jingoistic pride those fucking Woody Guthrie songs about harnessing that goddamn river. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. Your power is turning our darkness to dawn. So roll on, Columbia, roll on. So let's just spend one minute more, dear ass kicker, here on our 50th Kick-Ass Oregon History Podcast. Keep your eyes closed and imagine, just for a minute, one small minute, a Columbia River without those goddamn dams. Thank you for listening, Ass Kicker, and be on the lookout for future podcasts by our crew. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was brought to you by ORHistory.com. It was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kent Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Check out our website at ORHistory.com. There, you can subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered through RSS directly to your device. You can sign up for our exciting Oregon history events, pick up Oregon history merchandise, get a list of songs featured in each podcast, receive extra insights into podcast topics, and read of our adventures as Oregon's rock and roll historians. Kick-Ass Oregon History is supported by listeners like you, and we're looking to do more. Soon, we will ask your help with an exciting new project. In the meantime, share the podcast with your ass-kicking friends, and stay tuned for our announcement. You can also support the podcast today. Go to orhistory.com and click Donate. Follow us on Twitter at Oregon underscore History. You can also like us on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. As always, we'd like to thank our friends at Eastside Distilling, crafters of Burnside Bourbon, for their generous support. And coming up on June 18, 2013, please join our resident historian Doug Kent Crispin at the Jack London Bar at 7.30 p.m. for the Great Flood of 1894. 
we'll hear odd stories from this deluge of biblical proportions, and we'll eat some cake. It also happens to be our second anniversary at the Jack London Bar, and the program is free. So come on down on Tuesday, June 18th at 7.30 p.m. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kate Crispin. That golden arrow does not point to his high watermark. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass. From the mouth of the Columbia to Kathlamet, the lowlands and flood fuck. Today's podcast was brought to you by Oregon. Fuck.